All right, man. Welcome to Crow Triple Seven Radio. This is episode 385. Jason Lingren is with me, and our guest today is Clive Horlock. We're going to be talking about the Bushmen and, in general, indigenous tribes and what's happening all over the world. And on this podcast, we have taken so much time to demonstrate what it means to be separated from nature. And once you are separated from nature, what happens? Uh, welcome, Jason. And good morning. All right, let's jump right in. Welcome, Clive. Good evening. Yeah, good morning there. Thanks for listening to me, hopefully. Yeah, you're, you're halfway across the world. Clive, why don't you come right out of the gate and give the, the contact web addresses that you're going to use for people who have an interest in what we cover? All right. I don't have the Roots and Journeys uh, website. If they Google that, they'd find Roots and Journeys Botswana, um, and I think that would take them to the website. My particular website is getrealafrica.com. Okay. Are you in Botswana, Clive? No, at the moment I'm in South Africa. I'm going back to Botswana in about two months' time again. Very okay. hot up there at the moment, and and no guests. It was a few years ago I noticed that Hollywood had gotten its hooks into Botswana because of all the beautiful scenery, the culture, and the animals. Um, they even made a couple shows. They weren't very long lived, uh, but to me, I remember thinking to myself, "There it is. Hollywood's getting in there now." Um, Everybody knows what follows, but let's jump right in. Let's get into a little bit of your background and uh, your introduction to the Bushmen. Go ahead. Take it away. Right. I come from a, a education background. I was a science teacher for many years after getting a degree in geology, but I then went into a number of businesses. I became a bit disillusioned with the education system, and um, I see why it's far more has come to, come to light since I've been working with the Bushmen. And it's actually given me more fuel for my concerns about education. But uh, I then ran a number of businesses in a solar company, which took me all over Southern Africa and into other areas of um, East Africa with rural solar energy programs, because I have had a long relationship with um, rural people and I speak uh, two different African languages. And when I came to a semi-retirement age, I then wanted to follow my passion, so I started a walking safari operation in Botswana, which I felt was probably one of the most unspoiled areas left in Africa. And um, after doing that for a short while, I thought, well, you know, I think they're better guides than myself to take people into rural and uh, into the wilderness of Africa. So I started hunting for bushmen. I found a couple of groups of Bushmen, but they were not really um, suitable for what I wanted to do. And this has happened that the Bushmen have been separated from their their roots and from their culture in many ways and their commercialization. But eventually I found a group of Bushmen who were as or are as, as authentic, I think you could possibly find at this stage and very suitable for um, working with guests. And from there, I then ran this operation for a while until I started um, learning more and more about the Bushman culture. Obviously, their knowledge of the bush, etc., was incredible. It is absolutely extraordinary, and their connection with the with the natural world. So all the fascinating aspects, um, you know, that people were able to enjoy. But then there was a lot more that became revealed to me, and I then became a student of their culture. 
and in particular trying to find out what it is that enabled these people to survive for 100,000 years plus without destroying their environment and at the same time enjoying a level of happiness which you would not expect from someone who has or from people who have no possessions as we would believe today. So that took me to where I am now and I now try and share this information because I think um, people need to hear it and um, I wish the Bushmen could do it themselves but I don't think they understand our, our culture and how far different we are from them so they wouldn't really know what to focus on but I've had a chance to look at both sides and I'd like this to get out to young people in particular because I think they're the ones who are going to hopefully try and lead us out of the mess that we are in and by learning from the wisdom of uh, these amazing people who are still connected with the natural world. Do we know what their population numbers are these days? This is a difficult one to, to give exactly. People talk about half a million over Southern Africa, but that means it people that could be, you know, physiologically look like Bushmen or have Bushmen genes, etc. And well, nearly all of us have Bushmen genes in us. But if we are to take people that are still um, connected and living a life as close to what they, they, they did in the past, well, then I think we're down to a couple of thousand. And so, yeah. So Jason and I have done a lot of shows where we've pointed out that when the kind of Western world takeover happens, one of the first thing that goes on is you're separated from nature. One of the examples we've used is the idea of a pagan, which were basically people living close to the land part of nature. Uh, they were defamed. And now, as we all know, that word is an insult or it's meant to be derisive. We've also pointed out that how is it that we claim in the West to have spiritual traditions and we don't recognize that nature is basically the creation in that way of thinking about it. But you've observed the difference between humans that are connected and humans that are disconnected from nature, haven't you? Absolutely. It's chalk and cheese. You know, rural people generally. Um, are very different from, from city folk. Um, they think they've been exposed to less. And so they are still connected to, on some level, um, you know, because this connection is multidimensional. But um, when you get to people that are close to, as connected as they ever were, then you can see the difference. Uh, and also you can understand how and why they developed the culture they did because of that connection and guidance from call it an instinct or whatever it might be, that actually told them what was right from wrong and what was needed to survive. And this, this we have definitely lost. Well, the people that are still connected to what I'll call the creation, which is nature, uh, they seem to have a very high spiritual element in the way they exist. Wouldn't you agree? Absolutely. And I think because I've been less exposed to the conditioning that uh, we have uh, through formal education, etc. They have far less clutter in their brains and they have maintained their connection, like with their, the healing dance, which I may tell you about later if you'd like to hear about it, and, and what that meant to their culture because it encapsulates what their culture is all about. So they maintained those the spiritual connections through ritual and also by not allowing themselves to be just, or actually confused by all the other bumps that is coming in through what we would call intellect. So is this a good point to meet Madala? Would this be a good place to intro that idea, Clive? 
Yes, uh, let me tell you, uh, it'll, it'll take me five minutes, but I'll give you the story because it does give some insight into, into the, the Bushmen. This man, Madala, an, an old guy, Madala in, um, in Gudi language means uh, old man. I came across him in about 2015, I think it was, on a farm in the middle of the Kalahari farming belt. In the, it's in the Kalahari area. And um, this guy, I didn't know at the time, he'd just been fired by the farmer because he had disappeared uh, six months, six weeks earlier. And when he disappeared, he hadn't put the horses away, which is what his job was, is to look after the horses because of the lions and other predators. And he disappeared. So he then arrived back the day that I happened to arrive at the farm, and he had just been discharged by the farmer. But anyway, that um, I heard about that a bit later. And then I went back to the farm about three, four months later to meet with the farmer. And the evening I got there, I see this old guy sitting under the trees. Now, this guy is probably as close to or the real bushman as you could ever wish to see. He was a maverick. He'd lived in the bush. And he had actually run away when the army had come and taken his family away and removed them from the Central Kalahari Game Reserve, which was established as a homeland for the Bushmen. So he'd run away and his family were taken away. So he was roaming now through the bush and every now and again doing a bit of work where he could to actually get some food and um, just near to be near water. So when I got back there that three months later and I saw this guy sitting there, I said to the local Africans working on the farm who aren't Bushmen, they are Tswana people, I said, isn't that Madala? And they said, yes, that's Madala. So I said, well, you know, what's he doing back here? Is he employed again? They said, no, he's not employed. He's just arrived here this afternoon. So I said, well, that's interesting. Maybe the farm owner is going to re-employ him or, may, or allow him me to work with him to when I have uh, visitors. The farm owner didn't live on the farm. He came from Maun, which is about 300 kilometers north of the, where the farm is. So when the farmer arrived that evening, he was also surprised to see Madala. They had a conversation. I wasn't party to it. Went to bed, sleeping under the stars. Madala was sleeping next to the fire. The next morning we got up and we went off to go and find a Bushman clan to do dancing for us. And that was about 30, 40 kilometers away. Now, to picture this Kalahari, it's a dry expanse of thorn scrub and grass, and it is dead flat for hundreds of kilometers, sandy and no water, no rivers, nothing at all. So now we're going through this path, um, just a vehicle track, and I'm watching the lion spoor on the, on the pug marks on the road just out of interest, and suddenly I see little human footprints. So I say to the farm owner as we drive now, I say, who would those belong to? There's nobody living here. So he stopped the vehicle and he said to the, the staff on the back of the vehicle, standing on the back, they said, who's are these? Who's poor as who's been walking here? And they said, that's Madala. We were now 12, 15 kilometers away from the fire where we'd slept the night before. And this was now still six in the morning. So he'd covered that distance already sometime in the night or whatever. We then traveled on another 20 odd kilometers to the settlement where the other Bushmen was, were actually staying. And there's Madala sitting under a tree. So anyway, this, this really baffled me. He's now traveled 30-odd kilometers since the night before. And this is an old man. He's probably close to 80. That night, we're sitting around the fire, and the farm owner actually says to the staff, he said, did you find out why Madala disappeared three months earlier when he left the farm? And they said, yes, he went to find his family. He had actually felt that his family needed him. He just got this, this feeling, and he needed to go and find him. 
So he walked off to go and find them. And this is where it gets really interesting because they had been taken to a resettlement camp, which was about 350 kilometers uh, northwest of the farm. And to do that, you had to walk across the central Kalahari game reserve, which he did in October and November of that, of that year. And those are the months which they call suicide months in Africa. The temperatures get close to 50. The sand, you can hardly touch it. It's so hot. There is no surface water. But this old man walked across. He didn't know where his family were, but somehow he found them. He then got there and he found that they were battling because they were shorter of resources. They not out to hunt anymore. The gathering is limited because there's too many people in one small area. <laughs> and they said they needed this thing, money this thing called money because they need to buy from a shop. So he then walked back to the farm because he had money buried in the tin. The money he'd earned, he'd buried in a tin on the farm because he'd never used money before. So now this is where you, you actually have to think about a guy of nearly 80 years old who has traveled a distance of nearly 700 Ks over six weeks on his own. He's found food. He's found water through the tubers, whatever way that they did it. and. Now he's back at the farm. How did he navigate? How did he know where they were? Even more interesting than the, the actual farm owner said to the, the staff, how did you tell him that I was coming today? And they said, we hadn't seen him. We never told him. He came and he said that uh, you, the farm owner, have left the farm and you're on the way to the farm. He knew it. Now, that now really gets you thinking about what it is, what connection they have, which is obviously a spiritual connection that they can know all these things and be able to see way beyond what we can see. So this fascination has just grown. And so I've actually tried to investigate more and more into how they managed to survive in the harshest of climates and for tens of thousands of years. What can we learn from them in order to help us survive? Well, this comes down to the crux of the matter. So here's a man who may be in his 80s. Uh, he travels 600 kilometers to find his family with no idea where they were taken, and he does find them. He goes through the worst, hottest months of the year, survives, and then goes back. But, I mean, the underlying problem with what we've just laid down here is there are a civilization of people that we call the Bushmen who for millennia, many millennia, have been living in tune with nature, never taking more than is needed, never knocking nature out of balance. And the army is rounding them up now and forbidding them to hunt. Is that right? They are forbidden from hunting in Botswana in total. No hunting allowed at all. By traditional means or any means, by the Bushmen. What is the stated reason for this? Well, they actually said they are poachers. The former president, Ian Karma, came down hard on poachers and um, he then... Uh, categorize these these people as poachers, even though they live for maybe 100,000 years without upsetting the balance of nature at all, he put them in that category. But we know that it goes further than that because they, it's a tribal thing in Africa and the Bushmen, like um, in most places and other you know, primitive peoples and, and indigenous peoples, they are very much marginalized. They are afraid of the Bushmen. They know that they have got powers that uh, average person does not understand. So they do whatever they can to, to marginalize them and persecute them. And this continues in the schools and throughout anything that the governments do in Southern Africa. 
Well, from the coverage of places like the Vatican that we've done, we recognize that there are a couple of things that happen when places like that go to take over parts of the world. The first is people are separated from nature and they become so-called pagans. The second is um, quite often with indigenous peoples is their language is put under threat and the children get put in education systems. So if I've followed what you've laid down, are Bushmen all over this area being rounded up and put in, I don't know what you call them, reservations? Well, they call them resettlement camps. Um, there are very few that are left to, to roam at all. Um, there are a couple in the central Kalahari, and when I say a couple, it might be 100 or so that are still around apparently, but all the rest are basically living in, in resettlement areas. The farmlands have been, I mean, the um, their lands that, that they are the most entitled to have been dished out to farmers and to all other operations, be it mining or whatever else, and they have really no area where they are free to roam. I have a little film that I've made, a documentary, and uh, where we actually um, interview the Bushmen, and their greatest call is just for land and to be free. They just want to be left alone, but there is nowhere that they are able to do that. And they are forced to go to schools. It was only two or three weeks ago that they found um, uh, five Bushmen. There were seven. Two of them had died on the way that actually ran away from the school that they'd been sent to trying to find their way home. And that is because they are also, um, they bullied at school because they're smaller. The teachers do not like them. Um, so it, it, is a, it is a miserable life for them, uh, unfortunately. And they have no freedom to do what they would want to do and used to do. I'm starting to detect, is a big part of this about mining resources? Do you suspect? Yes, absolutely. In the central Kalahari, where they, the Bushmen were told that they are, they are poaching in a, in a conservation area. Area. There are now Australian mining companies mining copper there. There's been uh, there's been a fracking investigation, and of course uh, Botswana's got diamonds. So there's no doubt that there's been a, a lot of um, speculation about diamonds as well. But definitely the copper mining is has started, and that was one of the reasons I think for them being removed from the area. Well, in recent months and years, we've seen the mindset of corporate Australia, haven't we? We've seen which way that's going. Rio Tinto, etc. Yeah. I've got to ask, do the Bushmen have any representation at any level that matters, or are they basically just being rounded up at will? No, they have almost no representation. Uh, if, they, if it is, it might be some on paper, but they really have no say. Now, when we say Bushmen, are we talking people who still hold on to the language? I think most people are familiar with the movie we, we briefly talked about before we began recording. It's called The Gods Must Be Crazy. It was a movie that I really enjoyed when I was young. Uh, but now as I look back as it, I, I kind of envision that it's a pre-echo in that representation, which is probably the closest most Westerners have ever gotten to knowing anything about the so-called Bushmen. There was a language of basically cliques. Is that one of the languages you speak, and is that the common language of the Bushmen? Yes, uh, there are a lot of different dialects that the Bushmen use, and it, they're all uh, full of cliques. I think the, the Ngara Bushmen that I work with, there's about 27 cliques that they use. I am not competent at it at all. I'm actually, I speak the, the Zulu language and the Kosa from, from South Africa, and the Ndebele from uh, Zimbabwe, but the, the, the Zulu 
I mean, sorry, the, the Bushman language is very, very difficult, and uh, I am not able to, to speak it. No. So if I'm not mistaken, Zulu is one of the largest tribes. There's a few tribes, I think, uh, that are quite large. How do the Zulu feel about the Bushmen? How do the other tribes feel about the Bushmen? And for that matter, have the Zulu experienced a similar treatment from the powers that be? Well, you know, initially that was the case. But um, if we talk before colonialism, the Bushmen um, or the sand people, and uh, it's not just the Khoisan, which is a common term. There's a difference between Khoisan and sand. The sand people who are the Bushmen, they were the original inhabitants of, of Southern Africa. And um, the Nguni tribes, which included the, uh, the Zulus, they moved down from Central and West Africa to occupy uh, a lot of Southern Africa. And they displaced the Bushmen as well. Sometimes uh, there were, you know, fighting, etc. but they outnumbered the Bushmen and chased them away. And, of course, they came in with their cattle and um, took over water holes, etc. So the Bushmen um, were, were displaced by the Africans moving into the area. And then, of course, the colonialists came and they came with the guns, etc. and they displaced all non-whites. But now that's, that Southern Africa is, uh, is really controlled by Africans, there has been no attempt to actually reconcile with the remaining Bushmen at all. In fact, in South Africa, um, there, there can't be more than five or 600 Bushmen left at all, and they have basically no rights. They are trying at this stage to find political representation, but they are not really making much, much headway at all. It's difficult to comprehend how the powers that be could not understand how critical uh, what those cultures have held on to since maybe the beginning of time for living beings, and it's being thrust aside so so readily. But I, I, I wanted to ask, you know, we pay a lot of attention to what news and Hollywood do because it's always been hand in glove and politics, entertainment, same thing, doing the same games in the West. To control minds, there's a certain tribe that I just wanted to ask you quickly before we move on. Do you remember a, I don't know, maybe 1950s movie called King Solomon's Mines? Did you ever see it? And there's a very tall tribe that's actually filmed in Africa, very noble looking people. Do you know who I'm referring to? Yes, I think you're talking about the Maasai. They were from East Africa, from the Kenya area. What part of Africa are they in? Central East Africa, they, they further north. It seemed to me that Hollywood made the connection that somehow they were the royalty of Africa. Do you know anything about the Maasai? Yes, I think that um, what they would be referring to there is that Africans uh, generally, I'm not talking Bushmen, I'm talking about the Nguni African, uh, they are pastoralists. They um, weren't hunter-gatherers, um, they kept domestic animals, and they were seen to be a lot more wealthy and the elite, uh, because um, cattle were considered the wealth. And because when they came down um, into southern Africa and further south, they found these Bushmen people who had no animals, so as far as they were concerned, they um, are actually in poor and um, inferior people. And that was already an interesting sort of a consideration here is the development of the ego and hierarchical systems and patriarchal systems, etc. How that all emerged um, is an interesting one and how the Bushmen managed to actually avoid pursuing that is, is a discussion on its own. 
but they were considered to be the elite because they were they had cattle. So before we go back over to the Bushmen, I'll state this. Um, in that very famous movie, they make the connection that these, I don't know, some of these guys look like they're nearly seven feet, maybe even some of them slightly taller than seven feet. Very distinct haircuts. In the movie, they directly link them with the pharaohs of Egypt. But we need to get back over to the point here. Um, Jason, do you want to jump in? Were there things about the Bushmen you wanted to bring up while we're still in hour one? Were the Bushmen aggressive at all and would possibly fight with other tribes? The Bushmen had, there is no history of Bushmen wars. So before you had the invasion of other tribes and other people, the Bushmen had a system, and an Alori system they called it, where they, a clan would occupy a certain area, which we, they, you could call their traditional ancestral area, and they would move about within that area. So although they were said to be nomadic, they would normally restrict, a clan would restrict itself to an area and just move seasonally within that area. And they had a friendly relationship with neighboring clans. So there is no history really of the Bushmen actually being aggressive. But when you had the invasion of other peoples and the Bushmen had their animals shot, and their water holes taken over by cattle, et cetera, et cetera, they would actually then retaliate in a way of trying to eat or shoot the domestic animals. And part of that was that they did not believe that an animal could belong to any person. How any human could believe that they own another life was beyond them, and they believed that that was animal there to share. So when that started happening, there was some conflict, and that is uh, when there have been reported cases of uh, Bushmen retaliating and shooting uh, bows and arrows, poison arrows, at other African people and at white settlers. But um, no, they are generally uh, not aggressive at all. I've read claims that there is no word for, what was it, murder or violence? Um, is that true? In their in their dialect in their language, I can't say that I could um, that I know about. No, can give you an honest answer to that, but I know it was very limit, limited. They did have uh, occasion to to actually have disputes. They did definitely have disputes. How they settled them was interesting, and of course there would have been people that could be could have been psychologically imbalanced, etc. That could have resorted to violence. So yes, I have heard of homicide. Uh, in the Bushmen people, but um, I don't know of any that there's a, no word for violence in their in their culture. No, I think that's one of the claims made uh, in the Gods Must Be Crazy, the 1980. I forget what it is. I haven't seen it in forever, but it's either violence or murder or something like that. That's the claim made. But let's get into the first walk, Clive. Can you describe to everybody what we're talking about when we say first walk, and we'll start to get into the Bushmen skills that basically blew your mind? Yes. Uh, when I got this group together, it was probably the third group that I'd actually tried out. Um, I would go into the bush with them and, and see how well they knew the bush and whether I was going to be bringing guests to meet Bushmen who had been become distanced from their actual culture. And I was afraid that there might be people now that are not able to, to share what I hoped they could share. But with this group, the first day we went out, one of the things I wanted to test was how far we could walk because the emphasis was on doing bush walks 
in wild Africa and it's sandy and it's warm. So this was going to be one of the tests. But after a couple of hours, we'd hardly gone a kilometer because almost every plant you come across, they will tell you at least one use for that plant. They would dig in a place where you cannot even hardly see the leaf of the plant they're talking about and go down a meter and come up with a tube of the size of a soccer ball, which contains water. Scrape off some of the pulp from the plant, squeeze it out, have a drink, share it, and then replant the plant again so that it can grow because they never take all the basic policy is you don't take more than one third of any resource that you find. You put it back for other people or for animals to share. So this is how we went from plant to plant looking at medicinal properties that really fascinated from using them for smoking a particular um, furry plant that they, they, they smoke for, for asthma, then to using the sticky plant for catching birds and so and so it just carries on. Then the plants that they use for making their bows and then the digging under this particular bush for the beetle and the, the lava which contains the poison which they extract from the belly of the lava to make the poison for the arrows and combine it with the chewed um, bark from an acacia tree. So it just became so fascinating. And then we got to a, a spoor because this is what I was particularly interested in because I, I, I'm a real lover of, of wildlife and really concerned at the rate at which it's disappearing from our planet. So we came to a spoor that I knew and I asked them, you know, what, what spoor is this? And I called the one guy across and he looked at it and uh, he then called the two other men in the group and they started conferring, walking around and looking at the bush nearby and now I started panicking, thinking, well, maybe they don't know what or how to answer because they're now living in a resettlement camp. But I had it totally wrong because then they came to me and one at a time they told me, this is a chemspok, which I knew to be correct, they told me it was a female. They told me its age, and they told me that it was there just before midday the day before. So they paint a picture. It is almost like that they've seen a video of what that animal was doing the day before. So when you ask them, for example, how did you know that it was there at that time the day before? And they said, well, that's where it spent most of its time. That would have been where the shade would have been from that tree, so that's where the sun was at that time. So they've got an answer for most things. But also quite often, which is an interesting one, they look at you as if to say, well, you know, what's wrong with you? This is so obvious. And they will say to you, because that's what is. It's not something that's debatable. That's what is. It's fact. So that, that was my first walk that, um, on, on, on that first particular morning. But then it went on because I was spending a couple of weeks with them. And then more and more, their behavior and reasons for their behavior came to light. For example, when the Guys, all three of them came across to actually give me the answer to the question about the spoor. They answered one at a time because they make decisions together. They don't have one guy saying, all right, well, you know, he can do this one now. Everybody will make the decision together. They collaborate, they cooperate, and nobody will take credit for answer, not one single person. So here I was seeing for the first time how they avoided individualism because they considered individualism to be very dangerous. So these are the things I started learning while I was doing my first walk. And then, of course, the behavior around the camp, the level of happiness, which you um, 
you can't really imagine that people that are living under the harsh conditions they have, people that can carry all their possessions on their back at any one time, can enjoy their lives to the extent that they do. The laughing, the joking, they have joking relationships with it, with members that aren't immediate family members. So it, it, it was really a revelation. And then to think about how they managed to achieve what they did achieve in a climate which is as harsh as anywhere you can imagine, where for eight months of the year in the Kalahari, in this particular area, you will not see surface water. There are no dams. There are no rivers. So how they managed to survive is extraordinary. So this is what came out after the after this first walk that I'd done with them, is how they managed to survive, as I've said before, and this is what I really wanted to, 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 to study. And then also I looked at the way that the relationship they had within, within the clan, and it became very evident that they had a tremendous understanding about what it means to be human, which is a big question in itself. They had an understanding of the human psychological mind, how they controlled ego, which I'll talk about a bit more later. They seem to understand it to a level that far greater than what we give them credit for. And then, of course, I realized how important their spiritual connectivity was for them, that sometimes two, three, four nights in a row, they'd just be the spontaneous breaking into dance. You don't know what triggers it off. But they will dance and you will see some of them each time going into different levels of awareness or consciousness or trance, whatever you would like to call it. And the way that this dance actually seemed to bring the clan together was actually um, something which was amazing to see because it revealed how important it was to have strength in the community because they could only survive as a community in those harsh conditions. It also was revealed, of course, the egalitarian culture that they have. And when I say egalitarian, I mean truly egalitarian. Men, women, children, all are of equal value. And it goes beyond just the human factor. They do not consider themselves to be important, more important than any of the wildlife and other life forms around them. And as they, they say to me, you know, God does not make mistakes. Everything was made for a reason. Why should we think that we are more important? So this, you know, the egalitarian nature of their culture was very evident. It is evident with them every time I'm, I'm with them. Every decision is made through collaboration and, and cooperation. There's the absence of individualism and the absence of comp or competition because competition creates individualism, singles people out. So they play games, they have lots of fun, et cetera, but the idea is not to actually to find a winner because they also, they make a comment to me which um, is quite interesting and in that they say, why are you wanting to find a winner? Are you trying to find a winner or are you trying to find many losers? So that kind of uh, thinking is, is not something that we see much about or hear much about today. And then there's the absence of ownership. They do not really own anything. There are few belongings that they call personal, even those are shared. So they do not believe that they can own land, that humans can own part of the planet or own animals. And the, and the properties they have, they, they will share them with others. So once you consider that this 
there's this absence of ownership, then of course, greed is not a possibility. So there's no power. There's the absence of ego. So there's no need for war. What are you going to fight about? Then you would understand then why they can be considered such passive people. So these are the things that became revealed to me over time. And then the level of love that is demonstrated within the clan, the relationship between the mother, the father, the children, and the rest of the family. There's a very tactile relationships. And there's always the humor. And they do not buy and sell as we do. Obviously, everything is about giving and sharing. And one of their relationships that they have is that if you give an article to somebody, it could be just something like some beads, then at some time later, that person will return the favor. And that was almost like a, a cementing process in relationships between the people. So suppression of ego to me is a huge one because that, that is something that they came to understand as a danger to their community. So they actively suppressed ego. And one of the ways that uh, you will read in some of the books, they talk about it, insulting the meat. And this is a story of a hunter who actually shoots a big animal. And when the rest get around there to see this, this eland, which would be a really a prize kill, they will then start making fun of the hunter so that he did not become big-headed. They will tell him the meat is rotten, etc., etc. And even in the games they play, there's a stick game that we play often with guests. There's Amidst the laughing and joking, they will find someone, obviously someone who has had the best throw or the greatest distance, and they will say to him, right, you can eat first, eat first tonight, but afterwards you're going to clean the dishes. Bring him back down to, to, to level ground. So ego is considered a major danger in the Bushman culture. Now, there are accounts that certain sects of the society we're referring to, if that's even the right words, which it's not, have they almost have a second sight. But in my mind, that brings me back to the spiritual ideas. Um, is there a sense of a creator? Is the entirety of the spiritual ideas that you've witnessed, is it tied to the creation, to nature? Yes. Do you think there's a God, a creator, or how do you view what you've learned thus far? Well, they certainly um, believe in a, in a creator or a God, they generally use the word a God. And this is who they actually link with when they go into, or one of the dances they do is the attempt is to actually link with this creator or God. They also talk sometimes about um, a, a joker God, because sometimes things do not always go according to plan and life. And they say, well, that's the joker God playing games with them. But they do have a God, this particular clan. They talk about Nidema as being, as being their God. And they believe that this God obviously is of a spiritual nature. And they believe that when they go into the trance and not believe, they see um, what they describe as like golden threads linking all life together. And they call that an alarm. And this is the life force which connects all life forms on the planet. And they see this ultimately emanating from what they call the sky God um, as an expression of his love passing down to all life on earth. 
So yes, they definitely um, believe in a God. Now, from my limited study, um, I have studied as well as I can many indigenous tribes around the world. The problem is it's usually a white guy writing what I'm reading. Um, there have been some cases where I was fortunate enough, um, the so-called Aborigines, uh, there are a number of authors there, but there has been an explanation of the so-called Bushmen as almost possessing a second sight and something about how they interpret dreams. Are you familiar with any of that? The dream interpretation and the artwork is something which is um, I'm actually looking into right now, and I'm not finding as much information as I would like. Also, with the particular group that I work with in the Kalahari, there's almost, well, there is almost the absence of mountains and rocks, etc. So there is not much of the artwork for me to actually investigate. Um, so yes, I'm not. Um, I'm not actually too too clear on those dreams, but um, they do talk about dreams, and they talk about these dreams uh, as connections sometimes with their ancestors, and their relationship with the ancestors is another area which I don't believe that I'm fully qualified to talk on, because um, although they believe that they get advice from their ancestors, um, this ultimately others say is really just coming through the ancestors from the universal intelligence or the great spirit. Are you aware of any use of botanicals like say Iboga or some cactus uh, to access a spiritual realm or ancestors, if you know where I'm going there? Yes, I am investigating this as well. And I found this one very interesting because the Bushmen are able to actually enter high levels of consciousness without taking any of these plant assistance. And the only time that they use this is sometimes when they are mentoring or bringing a new uh, a student into the spiritual world to develop their norm, which is their, their spiritual center. And because they believe that people initially, when they're first going to go into their state of Kia, they sometimes believe that uh, they are not going to come out of it because they, they feared it's, they call it like small death when they basically leave the conscious world, or should I call the awakened world, and enter the higher level of consciousness, they sometimes need that for first-timers. But other than that, I find that the only the, the thing that is used mostly is rhythm. Their dances have a distinct rhythm and beat with the clapping, the rattling of the beads on their ankles, etc. And sometimes it's a matter of three or four minutes. And these uh, dancers, especially these most spiritual ones, are able to enter a higher level of, of awareness or consciousness. Now, I had read an account where people were with a Bushman and they were walking somewhere and he stopped them and said, we don't want to go this way. They later found out um, that there was some danger uh, in the way that he told them not to go. And they were puzzling over whether he actually had second sight, as we would call it or whether it was the environment around him that allowed him to know. Do you have any sense of the idea of second sight, or would you feel it's more within the observation and complete comprehension of the natural world? No, no, I think there's both. There's definitely um, evidence of, of a second sight. Um, I sat next to a, a, an old guy, Kara, in April this year. We were sitting in his camp, and he started rubbing around his neck, 
And I said to him, you know, what have you got? Uh, you've got neck problems. You've got a sore neck. And he said to me, no, it's the lion. The lion is walking down the road below us. So he described it quite clearly. So when I went there the next day, it's still hard to understand how this is possible because it's so foreign to my culture. They're the pug marks. There was no sound. He knew that lion was there. So if you want to call it second sight, I don't know, but he could see it quite clearly that uh, this lion was there. And similarly, there's um, the story of an old lady who was well into her 80s, totally blind and had been for many years. But once the dancing started and she got into her higher level of awareness, trance state, she would leave her stick and follow the circle as, she, as they dance around the fire, fire as if she had a vision back. And once in a dance like that, she even stopped next to a girl and, and, and told her, do you know that you are pregnant? And this girl didn't even know she was pregnant yet. So what is going on there is, is obviously beyond us, but it is something happening on a, on a spiritual level, energy level that we are obviously unable to, to understand. I think for, for most Western people, if we were thrust into that environment, many of us would become nervous about the possible of animals that could hurt us. And I have also read accounts where there's almost a communication level. The claim was that there's no need to kill a lion because of the way they know how to, I don't know, act or, or respond. Uh, are you familiar with any of that? The idea that they could walk out in a place where there's things that could kill you, lions and other things, and yet they do it unmolested. There is literally in the, in the Bushman culture, there's an absence or there was an absence of fear. They believed that everything in nature was there for a reason. God did not make mistakes. And that was part of their world. That's what is. And they had a link to that. And there was no fear. The only animal that I've come across that they have a healthy respect for is the leopard. Because they say that that leopard is a, is a scallum, which means he's a, he's a bit of a, a devious animal. But for the rest, they'll go and chase the lions away from, um, and this is more historic, they don't, opportunity doesn't happen much anymore, but they would chase the lions away from a kill and, and take some of the meat. Similarly, they would leave some meat for the lions when they got an animal. So they, they understood, they had this relationship, they had an empathetic relationship with, with animals. To give you a, a very interesting example, uh, hunters and um, when they would shoot an animal, and on my website you'll see, and hold on, I haven't actually posted that one yet, but the, when they actually um, shoot an animal, in, uh, a, a genuine hunter from the past, they would actually be able to feel the poison acting in that animal. They would know exactly where the pain is coming from, and they would feel it within their own bodies. So this was an empathetic or spiritual connection, and what I found is that when they reenacted one of these scenes for me where they shot an animal, although they didn't shoot the animal, they came back to the camp and I thought, well, aren't we going to chase the animal now? They say, you don't need to chase the animal now. The poison's taking effect. We don't want to chase them too far. Then we've got to walk too far. So they'd come back to the camp and what would happen is the hunter now would enter into a connection, a spiritual connection with his prey. He would feel that pain spreading through the body and then he'd wake up in the early hours of the morning or whenever and he'd say the pain is gone, the animal is now dead. So that is the kind of connection that they would have or did have with animals. 
Uh, it's just it, to hear these things growing up the way I did, it's almost incomprehensible. I'm not even sure if I'm qualified to think about it properly. <laughs> um, but are, are there, you know, often in, in Western world, uh, indigenous people hunting are depicted as when they, they make a kill, they stop and pray, they give thanks. Uh, is, is that within the Bushman culture? And also, are there animals that they would refuse to hunt? Absolutely. They would actually, um, they would select the right animal if they had a choice. Sometimes when the situation was bad and there was very little food, they might be forced to eat an animal that they would not uh, normally um, hunt. They weren't really sympathetic to the animals. They were empathetic, but they would not hunt more than they absolutely needed to because they believed that they were on the planet for a purpose and um, that, that that was the food that they needed to eat. But they would give thanks most definitely to any animal that they would shoot and um, different ways in which they do it. But um, the group that I work with, they would slit the knees, just below the knees of the animal to release the spirit of that animal. And then that night they would dance to the animal. And most of their, their dances are stories that are giving thanks to the animals for feeding them and for being part of their world. So there's definitely a respect for the animals. All right, Clive. Well, we're coming up to the end of hour one. Uh, we're going to take a quick 10 minute break and use the restroom or have a cup of coffee. Jason, anything you want to get into the hour one? I do have one more question for Clive. Well, it sounds like eating meat is a normal thing for them. I wasn't sure what their diet consisted of, but it sounds like this is a regular thing. Uh, and I'm assuming some other sorts of plants as well. Um, I would say that their diet, particularly in this area, was probably about 80 to 90 percent plant diet. And most of the plants in the dry areas, like the Kalahari, are plants and tubers that are found below the ground. Whereas further north by the Okavango Delta, because there's more growth, they would eat more plants and berries, etc., that are found above ground. So the majority of their diet, probably 80% of it, would have been uh, plant material. And then they were supplemented with meats, which they valued very highly, but it was not a major part of their diet. All right. So Clive, please, one more time, tell people where they can go online if they have an interest in this. And as we wrap up our one, are there ways, are there actual legitimate ways people who wanted to help support the rights of these endangered peoples? Is there anything real that they could get involved in? That is such a tricky question that, I mean, as I said I earlier, I think um, any kind of help would be of use to them. And, you know, financial help, is what they probably are requiring now because they are forced to buy what they eat and what clothes they wear, etc. The government sometimes gives rations and they do get a, a some type of a, a subsidy, which is not always totally reliable. But uh, money is probably not something that I would believe ultimately is going to solve their problems. They would really like to have more recognition um, of their culture and what their culture can actually contribute to our planet today. And this is why I'm actually talking to you right now, because I would like as many young people to hear how these people survived and also a little later tell you about how things have changed, which has actually brought us all to this place of now edge of extinction. So to be able to give recognition to the rights of the, the Bushmen and to give them land where possible, where they could still practice their cultures, and doesn't mean to say they are not allowed to 
receive a form of education, but the education should be something that is of more value than what has been given them today to those that are being educated and let them have a little bit more say in their futures, which at this point in time, they do not have. All right, Clive, I'm going to wrap up. What we're going to do is when this goes live in comments under the episode, we're going to put the links in. It's beyond reason that treasures like this are being eradicated from the world, but it's nothing new, is it? We've seen the powers that be in a death-based system continually wiping out so-called indigenous peoples and societies. Anyhow, that's it for hour one of episode 385. I hope to see you over at crow777radio.com for hour two, C-R-R-O-W-777radio.com. Members know to log in for hour two. We're going to take a short break, and I'd like to wish you all a happy, healthy, and higher-minded new era. Cheers. Is the enemy of knowing. Come.